When we were together, we started with a reading of Psalm 8. So I'm going to do that now. Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have founded a bulwark because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? Yet you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under their feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Well, it seems we're back to full-blown summer here in Southern California, but we did have a couple days this past week that were in my own personal sweet spot of perfect weather. Those days in the low 70s to the low 80s where you can leave your windows open overnight until the house gets just the slightest bit chilly by morning. But then if you shut up the windows, as the morning warms up, the house stays cool enough through the day until just when it's starting to get a little stuffy in the early evening, the temperature is cooled enough outside so that you can open up all the doors and windows and start the whole cycle over again without once, and this is the important part, without once running the air conditioning or heater. Ah, some people pursue email inbox zero. I pursue HVAC zero. Even on hotter days, I still like to see how long into the afternoon um, we can go before the air conditioner kicks on. As many of you know, this is one of the lesser ways that I'm a weirdo. The problem is, sometimes I forget to close up the windows, and I'll be out running an errand or working in the yard, and then I'll step inside from the 90-plus degree heat and realize that a nice hot breeze has been blowing through the house for the past hour or so, at which point I often think, come on, other people of my household who have been home the whole time, why do I have to be the one to close the windows? If I didn't do this, would it ever get done? This despite the fact that this quirk of my personality is entirely my own, and I was the weirdo who opened the windows in the first place. I'm sure you have your own aspects of keeping your home functioning that only happen if you are the one to do them. Often these are more important things than HVAC zero, admittedly, like groceries or paying bills. Some of you are like, yes, Curtis, I live alone, so that's true of everything in my household. One of the other things like this in our house is keeping on top of what exactly has been in the fridge and for how long. If it were up to Meredith, there would almost certainly be moldy jars of condiments in the back of the fridge and limes that are so old and dried out in the fruit drawer that you can't quite tell what type of citrus they used to be anymore. Actually, eating leftovers at all is something that wouldn't happen in our house if I didn't make sure it happened. There have been, I don't know, dozens of times when I have, knowing that I am going to be gone at dinner time the next night, made extra so there would be leftovers. And I'll pack them all up, leave them in the front of the fridge so Mary just has to open it up and stick that baby in the microwave and she and the kids will have something healthy and delicious ready for them while I'm gone. And I'll walk in the door that evening to a stack of pizza boxes on the counter. Oh well. Sometimes these realities, if I didn't do this, it just wouldn't get done, they start to feel like a burden. Why do I have to always do this? But then on the other hand, this is just how families work. If your spouse or roommate or child or parent or whoever had to be thinking about all the things you do, 
to contribute to the household, in addition to all the things they do to contribute to the household, making sure that both of them actually had, in fact, been done. And then you were doing the same with all their tasks, making sure that they had all been done. Well, that's just a recipe for exhaustion. When families are functioning well, yes, there are going to be things that wouldn't get done if you didn't do them. And that's the whole point of being a family. Now, we will come back to that idea in a few minutes, but we're in a series called The Mission of God, looking at what exactly God is up to in the world and how understanding that might help us follow Jesus into the world together. If you were with us last time, you may remember that we looked at the very first part of the very first chapter of the Bible, the pre-human story of creation. Just as a quick recap, we talked about how from the very beginning, we see evidence of God's mission, that all things not just humans, but all things, would be in harmony with and reflective of God's character. And we saw some of those characteristics of God playing out in the story of Genesis 1. God's goodness, power, non-dominance, life-giving, abundant, patient, collaborative, non-hierarchical nature, and, and more. We saw how the story of creation portrays God as progressively giving away more and more power, leading up to where we're going to pick up the story this week with the creation of humanity. We're going to stick for the most part with Genesis 1 for our purposes here and not get into the story in chapter 2, not because it isn't also important, but because it kind of takes us too far afield from what I want to focus on this week. So another time for Genesis 2, but this is what we hear in the rest of Genesis 1, picking up where we left off last week. This is verse 26. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in God's image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, they created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, see, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that God had made, and indeed it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now, just like last week, it's important for us in reading and trying to understand this story to understand a bit of the cultural context that it was told in. There were other stories in the surrounding cultures about the creation of humans, stories that in some ways seem pretty similar to the story in Genesis 1. And those similarities, it's important to note, are not a threat, as if the fact that Genesis 1 isn't a wholly unique document somehow undermines its importance or its truth. Those similarities remind us that God has always operated in the real world, where there are real cultures that already exist and which God interacts with, reacts against, nudges forward. So the similarities between the surrounding stories and the story in Genesis 1, they are what ground us in the cultural world of the ancient Near East and help us to hear what the author of Genesis 1 was trying to say to that particular cultural moment. There are stories like the Babylonian Enuma Elish or the Akkadian story Atrahasis, where the gods take clay to form humans. 
while also mixing in maybe a few cups of the remains of a defeated god's body and also a few dashes of divine spit or blood or something like that, it's similar in some ways to how Genesis 2 talks about the dust of the earth and God's breath being what goes into the creation of Adam and Eve. But it's also different. Many of the accounts use the term image of the gods to describe someone or something related to humanity, kind of like Genesis does. And the purpose of humans is often in a relationship of servitude to the gods, a concept that the Bible uses also to describe our relationship with God, that we are God's servants. But even as I say that, the differences between those other accounts and Genesis shine through as what is actually important. Who is the image of God? And what does it mean to be God's servant? The author of Genesis is using these superficial similarities to draw the attention of their readers to what's different, which is where the real meaning, the real importance lies. Because in the Babylonian and Akkadian stories of human origins, and this is uh, coming from John Walton, an Old Testament professor at Wheaton, he says, humans are created to do the work that the gods have gotten tired of doing themselves, to feed the gods or otherwise care for them, doing the things that the gods need done, but that they don't want to have to do themselves anymore, to be the gods' slaves, in essence. In Mesopotamia, Walton writes, the cosmos functions for the gods and in relation to them. People are an afterthought, seen as just another part of the cosmos that helps the gods function. This is very different from the story in Genesis. God did not need the cosmos. God chooses to create, bless, and partner with the cosmos. One other consistent theme in the ancient stories about humans is the concept of image of God or image of the gods in the surrounding culture. Outside of Genesis, there were two figures that might be referred to as image of a god. First, an actual idol made of stone or metal or wood. Second, the king. In fact, this is what is most often said in other creation accounts, that the king is created in the image of God, and all humanity is to serve the king as part of their service to the gods. The king is God's representative. And so service to the king is service to the gods. It's pretty obvious who told these stories and who benefited from them. The kings. Yes, the gods created you all to serve me. I think some churches operate on this model of leadership. (laughs) But Genesis, from the very beginning, identifies humanity as in the image of God. And not just men either, but women as well. In the image of God, God created them, male and female. God created them. There simply was no other ancient account that said anything like this. But it fits right into the non-hierarchical, non-dominating character of God that we looked at last week. In Genesis, kings are very much not a part of the original creation. And even in an extremely patriarchal society, women are in the image of God. In fact, we could do a whole series just tracing the subversive and surprising ideas for its time about power and gender that pop up throughout the Bible, but that's a series for another time. The point here is that all humanity, not just Israel, not just men, not just the powerful or just the king, but all humanity are made in the image of God. But what does that mean? Well, this is where it's helpful to turn back to the similarities between Genesis and the other creation accounts in the culture. 
John Goldengay writes that people have interpreted the image of God idea in all sorts of ways over the years. Basically, whatever different eras of history thought was the most important part of humans, that's what the image of God was thought to mean. During the Enlightenment, people were sure that the image of God was our minds, our reasoning ability, our rational thought. In earlier eras, it was our ability to interact with God and be in a religious sort of relationship with God. Today, it's trendy to attribute our creativity to that image of God in us. And none of those are wrong, necessarily. But this was a phrase with an actual meaning in the ancient world, and it wasn't any of those things. Not really. As I said, it was sometimes used to describe idols, and other times to describe kings. And in both cases, as Walton again says, there was a consistent meaning to the phrase image of God. The idol, or the king, were representatives of the God on earth, embodying the God's attributes and characteristics. And especially in the case of the king, carrying out the duties and functions of the God, representing the God's power, for example, as they rule over the nation. And this is the message Genesis is sending as well, except with all humanity being the image of God, meant to be God's representatives on earth, meant to embody God's character and live so that the earth might be in harmony with God. When men and women are created in the image of God, it means all humanity is meant to partner with and represent God on the earth. This is the final climax of that progressive giving away of power in creation that we talked about last time, to finally create humans whom God doesn't just delegate tasks to, but partners with. Why is God so insistent on giving away power? I don't know, but that's the story we have in the Bible. And it's one that starts from the very beginning of the Bible. And so specifically, God tells humans to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the rest of creation. Multiplying and filling the earth is important so that God's representation would be throughout creation like having embassies in every country on earth or something like that. Now, since we have effectively, very effectively, (laughs) filled the earth at this point, there's a real question of whether this part of the mandate, while certainly important at the time, whether it's basically been fulfilled at this point, and if so, whether Christian understandings of sexuality that are based on being fruitful and multiplying might need a bit of updating, but that is, again, a topic for a different sermon. (laughs) For now, I want to focus on the subduing and dominion ideas. These words feel harsh to our ears and in tension with the peace-loving, non-dominating characteristics that we mentioned last week. And they are. This is one of those tensions that exists in the Bible that we talked about a few weeks back now. God both desires for peace and non-dominance to extend throughout creation and recognizes the real-world reality Not everyone or everything is going to willingly realign themselves so as to be in harmony with God's character. I thought John Goldengate put this really well. He writes this, The goodness of creation does not imply the perfection or completion of creation. Creation needs to be led toward that completion. And this is humanity's task. Creation groans and looks for its deliverance, as Paul says in Romans, as God created it, not merely because it was spoiled through human sin. The goodness of creation did not mean it lacked tension 
or conflict, and that human beings just had to continue to enjoy a tension-free and conflict-free life. And then he goes on to give a specific example of what he's talking about. Genesis's readers know that the animal world does not live in harmony, but lives on the basis of dog-eat-dog. Genesis 1 implies that this is not God's intention, but neither is it the result of a human fall. Animal inclinations to kill and eat other animals is built into their nature as animals and is a part of the goodness of creation. And yet, holding them back from doing that is part of humanity's vocation. I might say this another way, using the language of science. When God gave away power in creation, part of that is through the processes of evolution, by which creation could extend the creativity and life-giving power of God. But that includes, then, a survival of the fittest that does not reflect God's character at all. And part of humanity's role as God's representatives is to know God's character well enough to identify where creation is out of line and then work to bring creation out of its natural state and back into harmony with God. And that sometimes is going to take some subduing, some dominion. And this then extends beyond the natural world as well. When the natural state of families in our culture is out of harmony with God's character, we as God's representatives are given the job of making our families different. When the way business is done in our culture is out of alignment with who God is, it's our God-given responsibility to realign things in the spheres of business that we have dominion over. When the way people relate to one another is exploitive and dominating and dehumanizing, it's our vocation as God's partners to treat people differently. And this is where that tension arises once again, where we are given the task of dominion by a God who isn't dominating. The squeamishness we might feel with the idea of ruling over and subduing creation, I don't think it comes from Genesis 1. I think it comes from the really bad job we've done of this as humans over the past million years. We are to rule over creation and subdue it as representatives of God. A God whom Genesis 1 portrays, as Golden Gay says, exercising sovereign power in a way that shares life and life-giving power with creation. That is how God uses power. God is a king who rules in such a way as to bring life to his people. God isn't like the other gods in the other stories, who rule in such a way as to bring life to themselves, no matter the consequences for those under them. And so, Golden Gay goes on, paradoxically, human mastery over nature must be in the service of the liberation of nature, just as God's authority over humanity works in the service of human liberation. As the exercise of God's authority is designed to free human beings to be themselves, so the exercise of human authority is designed to free nature to be itself. And I would just add that the same idea is true whenever we find ourselves in positions of authority over other humans, not just over nature, in our families businesses, schools, our authority is designed to free the humans who live with, work for, learn from us, to free them to be themselves and to have life. And this brings us full circle back to where we started. What is only yours to do? Where has God placed you as God's representative? 
And how can you bring God's character into that space? It seems like, for me at least, which might be my own dysfunction talking, my first thoughts in response to a question like this, what is only yours to do, or what just won't get done if you don't do it, my first thoughts go to the great, the significant, the world-changing. But that isn't really what we're talking about here, as grand as being God's partners is. It helps me to remember that this book was written to a people who were mostly subsistence farmers, whose job to do was the oh-so-mundane task of raising enough food from the ground so that the next generation would survive. That was what wouldn't get done if they didn't do it. And they were God's partners as they plowed that land, sowed that seed, raised that next generation. Golden Gay has a great quote in relation to all this. He writes, The people of God is always open to overestimating its own significance and also to underestimating it. The people of God is always open to overestimating its own significance, but also to underestimating it. We overestimate when we think that all this is all for us because we are princes and princesses under God, our King, and God did all this just so I could be happy and healthy and successful. We underestimate when we forget that God has given us the far higher calling than being happy and healthy and successful. The calling of being God's partners in the great and the small. And that there are aspects of God's mission that simply won't get done if we don't do them. People sometimes wonder why God doesn't do X, Y, or Z thing. And I think more often than not, it's because we've forgotten that that was ours to do. That it won't get done if we don't do it. Why has God shared power with us to this degree? Again, I don't know. But that's the story we have in the Bible. The one we are called to live out as we follow Jesus into the world together. So when we were together, we turned the corner here to some reflection. It was around the questions, where do you have dominion, great or small? And making a list of those aspects. Where do you have dominion? And by dominion, I don't mean all powerful dictator level control. In any relationship, we have some power, family, friends, coworkers. We have some control over how we spend money or how we make it. Some of you have dominion in classrooms and offices or over how projects get done or how people get led. But where has God placed you in a situation where you have influence, where you lead, where you have dominion in some way, great or small? How can you exercise that dominion in a way that reflects God's character? And what I would encourage you to do is reflect on those questions, make a list of where there is some dominion in your life, and then think about how you could exercise that dominion in a way that reflects God's character. First, just jot down some ideas for all of them, and then pick one area and hold it specifically before God. And maybe think through what is one thing that you could do in that area in the long run, and also one thing that you could do in this next week. That's enough for now. Thanks for joining us as always, and we'll see you next time.